podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to episode 40 of this moment's podcast. Big shout out to everyone who listened to the previous one, episode 39 with Blockchain Jeff, RE, cryptocurrencies. We discuss everything from a couple, quite no, like four or five coins with a bit of analysis, how to invest, where to invest, how it can affect us on a macro level and a micro level and all types of stuff. So make sure you check that out. Quite a lot of people enjoyed it, so get involved. Anyway, my episode 14 was with my boy, Dr. Lee. I think it was 14. It might be 24. One of them two. And he's back. We're going to talk more NHS stuff. What are you saying? I'm um, cool, man. I call you the R&B sweet boy doctor. Nah, you need to allow it, man. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone, bro. Okay, cool. Me. So, how, how's, how's life been? Life is cool, man. I mean, oh, we're just trying to, we're trying to get by. It's, it's all right. I mean, not too stressful. Um. Okay, that's a lie. It's stressful. What but to say? Why are you lying, bro? Nah, it's, it's stressful, but like it's short term in it. So short term pain, long term gain. Got a plan. So how how's the um, how you say the morale is amongst um your profession? Do you know what the morale is low? It's 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 terrible. Um, and that's from everyone. That's from people in general practice. That's from people in the hospital. I mean, you probably see it from all the doctors on the timeline. Everyone's just bitching and moaning twenty four seven. But um, it, it's 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 low. I can't lie. Um, and nurses as well. The nurses I speak to, it's a tough time to be in the NHS. How okay? Quick before we um, get into the nitty gritty, how would you compare it to like your first years as a doctor? Hmm. To be honest, it's a lot better than my first years at the moment because hmm. I'm doing something different. So hmm. when your starters like F one, F two, and all that you're literally the bitch. 100%. You're <laughs> the bitch. Word. So you, yeah, yeah, you literally sit there putting your fingers in bum holes and doing all that madness and getting vomited on and spit on and all sorts. It's, yeah, it's not very yeah, nice. Yeah, I'd, I'd have the temperament for that. So looking at everything, NHS is probably in a worse shape than when I started. But for me personally, because I'm doing something different, I mean, I'm kind of removed from all that. So it's not too bad, even though it's tough in its own right. Mm. But That's I'm, why career strategy is so important. Yeah. But anyway, cool. So... We're gonna go through last our last podcast was a bit more of an ideological discussion. Yeah, this one's me telling everyone that I want everything privatized and burnt down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this one's a bit more of a wake up call because when I when we read stuff online or in the media, or we hear people. Well, when I hear people in my office talk about the NHS, I just think you man are hella deluded. So mm. hopefully, this is a bit of a wake up call, and uh, so we can start trying to shift the narrative to what actually happened in reality. But firstly. Let's recap on how both general practices, so your GPs and A and E, actually make their money. Right. So, so as I said in the last podcast, the way general practice works is through um, their contract. So, it's like depending on which contract you use, the GMS or PMS, and go back and listen, and you can, um, if you want to know what those are. So, GPs, for example, if you've got twenty thousand patients on your list, you get paid. I paid. I think. Paid, I think. I think six pound per patient on the list. Ooh. Um, and then you get paid for certain things and additional services and things like that. Mm. Um, a lot of them are incentivized and based on your performance. So um, the last podcast I talked about Quaff. So what Quaff is is essentially where you get paid for outcomes or health outcomes. Mm. So for example, I think I gave the example of smoking last time. If someone's a smoker and I advise them to stop smoking, you get a point. If they successfully stop smoking, blah, 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 you get paid for that. If their blood pressure is high and I give them medication to control their blood pressure, I get paid for their blood pressure being in target. And these are all targets set by the government based on evidence as such. But mm. yeah, um, So that's how sort of GPs make their money mainly. Um, 
hospitals work on a similar similar type of thing. So, for example, in A&E, you get paid for what you do. So, mm. if you've gone to A&E and you need an X-ray, they get paid for doing the X-ray. If you need you get you need a blood test, they get paid for doing the blood test. If you've taken a history, giving them some advice, they even get paid for giving them advice. Mm. Blah 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 blah. So, literally, that's why when you do a, if you're a doctor and you're doing A&E, you have to make sure the discharge summary is accurate because mm. they get paid on what you've done for that patient on that okay. time and that's that's basically how they make their money as well uh, how you've worked on A&E's before right yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what is the craziest things you've seen in A&E from more of like a why the F are you in my face like we shouldn't be here um, and what's like the maddest injury you've seen so craziest things well I, told, I think I told you last time I saw three, a family of three so it was a granddaughter a grandmother a grandson <laughs> and mother come in for a checkup for no reason to A&E. Yeah, A&E, there was nothing wrong with them. They got to after the door, but still, that was a bit mad. I've seen someone come in for a hiccup. A hiccup? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you said that. Oh. Yeah, I've seen, that, seen someone come in for a broken nail. I mean, you see this all the time. I've seen someone come to A&E because they had a cold and they couldn't get a GP appointment. So they um, came to A&E? For a cold, yeah. And there's nothing you can do about it, so it's just like... See? So if I, I start it, telling my views, people think I'm a dictator. I'll start tasting people at the door, you know. <laughs> <laughs> nah, for, for hiccup. You see some madness, so yeah. Um, I, I mean, in terms of like the craziest thing in terms of injuries, I mean, I could literally go on forever, honestly. I, you see so much, especially in A&E. a and &E, I think, I always use the phrase, it drops your balls as a doctor because mm. like it actually makes you, in a lot of the other things when you're F1 jobs, you're kind of protected. So you're really not the decision maker. You you do the jobs, you mm. sort of do the initial stuff, but someone else is really making the decisions. And A and E, usually most people do it in their F two year. That's when you're you make the decisions, and that really is when you start thinking, right? I'm living and dying by things because I'm sending people home with no one else looking, no one else checking my work, no one else seeing mm. what I'm doing. And if they come back or they drop dead that night, then that's so, on me. Innit? Yeah. And um, yeah, so it's a it's a rite of passage that I think every doctor I think every doctor should have to do any. Is I think it's a shame that they don't, mm. but um, I think it's something they have to do. But I, could, I could really, I mean, I've got so many stories I can't even think of one on the top of my head. There's been so many crazy things like because it, you see it in any resus, which is the area where the really sick people come in. Mm. So after a couple of months, once you've been working there, they'll they'll move you to. Um, the resus bit and see if you can sort of at least begin to do that kind of stuff on your own and um it, i mean it, luckily i did it when i was a bit more experienced so i did it in my st2 year so you had a bit more experience mm. so it wasn't too bad so they let me run things on my own from quite early but um yeah it's it's a bit mad so i don't know how you keep it cold. no it's calm man. i mean you get used to it you get used to it like you get immune to it i don't get used to it bro somebody coming for a hiccup i'm losing my job that same day i trust me man i <laughs> okay, mean cool so yeah changes so why is it why is nhs struggling so like it's quite obvious that it's struggling due to chronic underfunding but i probably should probably talk about how that kind of happens um so generally they do pledge more money but they know that it's not going to be enough to meet the demand but yeah. secretly they are cutting costs as well at the same time so for example i'll start with general practice because that's what i'm most familiar with the actual numbers and the finances of um if you so for example you get paid for doing some services so yeah. i'll give you an example one is if you've got your practice nurse yeah. and she changes a dressing so um someone's got a wound and they come out of hospital they've been discharged with a wound and they send you to the gp to get it changed and looked after and stuff yeah. 
So I'm, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think they used to get paid like something like forty pounds for the last financial year yeah. to do that to do that service, and then now they just say right now you're getting thirty six pounds so to do the same thing. Ten percent. Yeah, so they just keep decreasing the cost. The thing is, they force you to make what they call efficiency savings every year. Oh, okay. So one, if you don't use all of your budget, then basically it gets cut, <laughs> and um so you have to be more efficient the next year and two they're trying to chop down the amount of money you get for every single thing every year so it's quite it's quite difficult so okay when you, when you think about that economically yeah so you're saying essentially the same things you're doing year in year out they're reducing the amount of money you get paid for it per per unit but then you end up doing more of them per year yeah i'm about to say that so not only is that, you also got the fact of inflation. Of course, yeah. Which is going, which is every year, let's say it's a 1% inflation. Yeah. And you're cutting things down. And to the fact that just simple, the amount of people, the amount of people you're seeing, as you're saying, the numbers are going up year in, year out. Yeah. So, and then you, the way you couple that with the propaganda of, we're going to pledge 3 billion to the NHS. Yeah. And then you have all people raving their red, their red ties or their blue ties yeah, or, yeah, yeah. The yellow tie, it's, it's mad, bro. Wow. Yeah, and the thing is, because as I mentioned in the last podcast, that's how GPs make their profit. So they, so you're going to get paid £40 to do this service. So I need to find a way in terms of nursing time, how much I'm going to pay for this 15-minute point. It's not have a knock-on effect because GPs ain't going to be like, okay, cool. If you're going to drop like each uh, procedure I do by, let's say, 10%, 5%, blah, 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 yeah. I'm not just going to take that hit to my profit. You're gonna, they're going to pass on the cost naturally and they can't really because it's not like a normal business where you can pass on the profits to the consumer. consumer yeah so what they do is basically take the hit and that's why i mean gp earnings i think it was in 2015 for the first time in terms of um gp earnings they, the average earnings because a lot of people don't work full time went under 100k for the first time and it's just been decreasing since i Jesus. think it's at the moment it's like 90 and was it um, i remember seeing the conservatives talk about they want gps to be working seven days a week oh no don't start me on that because that's what we talked about in the last one so mm. that's a bit of a nightmare um i can go into that a bit later but in terms of just cutting the costs so they're basically taking the hit in terms of their profits but some gps now are just saying Whoop, i'm done then fine because they're partners and they own the business mm. and because they're taking massive hits to their business they're, and it's not viable so you get some GPs who are partners who are working full time who say we're making in the when the, in the heydays like 2005 after that contract they're probably making 150 160k mm. and now they're taking so much in terms of massive cut they're probably making 70k for all that work and they're like nope so they literally hand the keys back to the, the government they say look we're closing down the practice and you're seeing a lot of practice closures oh, okay. because partners can't take that financial hit and they think oh I might as well work as a salaried I'm doing all this work as a partner in ownership of the business and I'm taking home less than the salaried who mm. who I'm employing full time so what, it doesn't really make sense I might as well quit and then go work as a salary somewhere or go work as a locum mm. and that's what's happening there so it's a bit of a nightmare and in hospitals what they did to hospitals was a proper shake because um, what they did they essentially you've got you get paid for everything you do for example so for example if I'm a kid mm. and I come in with an asthma attack and they treat you so they give you like nebulizer blah 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 and then they send you home cool what they did is they said some kids like have a, like really bad asthma mm. and they're going to just keep coming in but if you come in within say two weeks of you having an asthma attack that counts that you didn't 
do the management properly or it failed management. Although so it, it could just simply be it could just happen. Yeah, yeah, it could just be ill, or it, it might not have followed instructions when they went home, or it's just bad luck or whatever. So then they don't pay you for the second admission. Oh, so they don't pay you for the second admission. So that is a massive hit to some hospital income. It's 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 just it's just harsh, man. So like you see when Jeremy Hunt came into sort of power in the coalition everywhere well most places were in the black and a few places were in the red and slowly and slowly because of all these little cuts and they do it incrementally every yeah. year so it's hard to detect yeah and doesn't create a massive outcry but sure. that's the best way to actually break a system down incremental yeah and then suddenly everywhere's in the red everywhere's in the red everywhere's in the red and it's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and it's just that chronic underfunding through methods like that and then so example it's like saying yeah okay you're getting paid I'm paying you £10 at the moment um, for this thing I'm not going to pay you £8 and then they'll come oh but we'll come in with an emergency 50p on every £10 to come to come and help you it's not really going to do anything because yeah. you're actually getting less money in the first place right. for more demand so yeah, that's that's really how they're kind of shaking us in terms of the changes that they're making. Um, there's that, and then there's also the rotor gaps, which are a massive problem. And mm. it's not just doctors; that's nurses as well. Mm. Um, because the increase in demand every year, you're going to need more staff every year. Yeah. Um, and you need more staff every year; they need to recruit more. Now, obviously, there's this international recruitment drive. They're trying to get nurses and doctors and stuff mm. from all over the world, but no one really wants to come because it's not that attractive anymore. Apart from if you're in a country where they are economically so much worse off than England, mm. that it's still beneficial. But the rotor gaps are proper killing people because now, if you look at some, I'm just, I can say about CMT, like medical rotors, they've got 20 places and only 10 of them are filled. Jesus, so you're working at a 50% deficit. So they're filling it with locums, but then sometimes, I mean, no offence to all you locums out there, cause I'm, but sometimes they don't turn up. <laughs> if they do turn up, they're just there to get their money and go because they're not going to come back the next day and they're getting paid five times more than everyone there. So literally they'll either sometimes be quite lazy and not do the work required or other times not turn up and you just have to cover the work of two people. So literally you've got two bleeps going off and you can't do anything. Mm. You can't do anything valid with do, trying to cover two doctors work literally you're just firefighting mm. making sure no one dies on your watch and then literally wait until the morning mm. and that's how on calls are really going at the moment and it can be quite tough and quite challenging in a lot of hospitals and it's just, I mean I don't really know the ins and outs of nursing but it's the same for a lot of nurses like I know the rotor gaps are killing them as well so that they're trying to save money on staff obviously and they've not got even enough staff they can't even recruit enough but it's just, it's just um, it's a bad time. It is a bad, bad time. This is depressing. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, like, it's, I'm trying to think, like, how do you solve this? But then I'm, it's because I believe they don't want to solve this. I believe, no. with a conservative talk, I believe they're trying to destroy the NHS incrementally to the point where the public and everybody agrees, okay, we need a new system. Yeah. Because this level of un- underfunding and overstretching because as we said on our last podcast check that out episode 14 mm. if you look at how if you look at how much we spend compared to other countries roughly our size economic power and culture mm. where we underfund on GDP per capita GDP period like we are grossly underfunded as you said you could only afford you could only do two out of three things quality mm. was it quality affordability affordability universality and universality yeah 
and currently we're just doing uni- um, affordability. Yep, affordability and universality. But the quality is lacking. It is, and it's just getting worse and worse at the moment because the it's just like the waiting lists are ridiculous. So, I mean, I'll go on to probably referrals a bit later, but if you look at the standard waiting times now, they're just going through the roof. So now, now even as myself, it's. I mean, we try not to refer anyway in our practice anyway because we've got a degree of professional pride and we try and make sure we at least to the best of our ability can equip ourselves to manage things properly. But for simple things like mental health, I'm doing a mental health referral knowing that this person is not going to get any help for like nine months. That's mad. Or I'm doing a dermatology referral knowing this person is not going to be seen about their problem for three months. And it's so bad, like respiratory actually, so the respiratory consultants got together and wrote sort of an email to all the practices in our area, just saying like, um, okay, the demand is getting crazy, so we're going to put really strict criteria on everything, so you're basically trying to be arsy and say you can't refer X, Y, Z. But the thing is, I don't, I mean, you do get a lot of GPs who do refer because they're one, either lack of knowledge or two, being kind of lazy, but a lot, most of them are actually trying their best to to do right by the patient mm. but the the waiting list for now for a in my area for a routine respiratory appointment is i think 18 months that's wild which is just, out, just outrageous so it's, it's kind of difficult man it's really i mean i don't want to make this like a depressing podcast but i'm just, <laughs> trying, to, I'm just trying to tell you the reality of what, what it's like at the moment okay so wow uh, this is mad sad, you know. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. It's peak. It's, it's, it's peak. It's, it's but peak. I want people to understand it though, because when we talk about NHS, we just talk about yeah, like it's a broken system. Yeah. It's a broken system, and people need to understand that. Where do you and and even if you could change how people behave when they go to hospital, yeah. Because like the nurses that you're seeing, the doctors you're seeing, they're stretched, fam. Like they are stretched, they are stressed out, they're grossly underpaid, and we just have, have a, we just have a different a whole different attitudes to to the industry and a whole different attitude towards what we could do in the future because this is this is wild. Yeah, I mean, it's a broken system for, for several reasons as we touched on in the last podcast, not going too much into the ideals, mm. but I mean, the supply is a problem in terms of the amount that we can give because of the understaffing, underfunding, etc. But the demand is a problem as well. Um, like, if I'm, I mean, I come from a clinic, I did two clinics today and I can't, I'm just being real, 70% of them were a waste of time. That's wild. Complete waste of time. So, like, I didn't do anything for them. Um, and it's because, I it's I mean, maybe it's a lack of educa- patient education and it could be a lack of that. But the thing is, people just come in for sore throats, for viral infections. They don't holes. pay for it. But, yeah, but then, they, so they need to do something about the demand side. Because even, even if you manage to get the supply right, the demand will just increase. And I can talk about that a bit later when we talk about sort of the strategies that have currently been implemented to make a difference. And then what you're seeing in in reaction to those is not ideal. Okay, so speaking of that, so like, ta- what tactics to cope but are currently be implemented? So, so how 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 in how a nutshell? So both in hospital and in in primary care, so secondary care and primary care, um, they're trying to increase the amount of support staff. So you might have seen in a lot of hospitals now that you see these people called physicians assistants. So they are doing accelerated course. I think it's through two or three years a lot of them come from health backgrounds anyway and it's not they're just designed to do a lot of what doctors do mm. but they're not quite doctors so I mean I was really sceptical about them in the beginning but I've met some when I was in my A&E job quite a while ago and some of them are f- amazing Isn't some it? of them are just amazing at what they do because 
it's experience. One, they're like there were like the two that I, I was really impressed by were previous paramedics and really high up paramedics, mm. so they'd had a lot of experience doing stuff in the community. And then they got that basic medical grounding from an accelerated course, mm. and some of them are just really good at what they do. Um, so they're kind of impressive, but then obviously they're cheaper than employing a doctor, so mm. considerably cheaper. So that's why they're trying to increase the amount of support staff. As well as that, they're trying to train the support staff um, to do more jobs. So, okay, this is might sound bad. Um, I'm, I don't really care how it sounds, but what doctors are trained to do is to do the higher level thinking and um, the higher level things. And what you want to try and do is make the most expensive people on your roster their time more efficient. Yeah. So for example putting in a cannula people don't know what that is it's like a little tube which goes into your veins like which is used to give sort of fluids and medications yeah. doing that okay it's a doctor's job originally and historically and it's something that they've done for years and years and years but it's not a difficult thing to do once you get practice yeah. it's a kind of a waste of doctor's time to get them to be doing such remedial tasks when they should be making decisions and they should be doing things which require a high level of training and are stretching them which other people can't do mm. so what they're trying to do is trying to get other support staff such as nurses and, um, and they get other assistants so they get like phlebotomists and stuff trained to do these things which they can which they can do mm. um which frees up doctor time to, to do, do more difficult the tasks. more difficult tasks so what I'm seeing a lot of the time, I even saw it, I think, on one of your comments. So, um, one of the uh, there was a nurse who was complaining about um, why don't nurses get a lot, a lot of shine because they're doing a lot of doctors' jobs anyway. Um, and I think that that is the answer to that because that's that's the idea because they're trying to make doctors' time. Because let's be fair, doctors are more expensive than nurses per hour. So they're trying to use that time more efficiently. And I get it. It's an unfair strain on nurses to add another job to their workload when they're already stretched anyway. Mm. But that is the idea behind it. The idea is to try and free up doctors to be doing things like making decisions. Speaking of what you're talking about, um, obviously we, we both know somebody who was... And she always tells me about the amount of admin work she has to do. And it boggles my mind. Oh, oh, you mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Clock to you mean? Yeah, yeah it bog, it boggles my like. So, is there anything being implemented to kind of reduce the amount of admin work you guys have to do? See, the thing is, in the hospital, no, because they don't want to pay for it. So, I think it is the biggest waste of doctor's time to get them to do discharge summaries. Like, I mean, okay, there is a learning part of it. So, when you're in F one, you don't really know what's going on. You do learn by reading these things and writing these things and stuff. But to be doing all of that admin. I mean, just doing jobs in general, like admin, cannulas, all these type of things, running around, you're basically a glorified medical secretary for the first year. Mm. And that's a complete waste of time. So um, I'll compare this to my cousins. Um, I've got two cousins who are doing um, sort of, they've done pre-med, so they're doing medicine in like Princeton and one's just qualified as a, doing a residency. Um, they family, <laughs> No, but they, they literally, so their program is once they finish doing the ward round, which is where they do the medical and make the medical decisions, literally the rest of the day they're doing proper skills like bronchoscopies they're doing um gastroscopies they're learning they're doing ev that's why they are consultants in five years because they're doing everything to do to make their time efficient to learn i know because they've got an abundance of resources because it's a private system but then that's why it takes three times the amount of time to be a consultant here because you spend the first couple of years at least the first four years if you're doing a medical job so uh, first four years doing 
clerical work in a nutshell and mm. then you get a little bit of medicine so you're doing like 10 15 percent medicine and then you're doing the rest of clerical work which is absolute bollocks <laughs> yeah so, and that's and so it's a complete waste of time but going back to um who you're talking about who i think you're talking about yeah she i mean she's um obviously doing speciality mm. and um she, she there's no way she should be touching admin she is a speciality doctor in a very niche field she should be doing what she's doing and using her expertise wisely but then she's spending the time doing all this admin and stuff what about you how much admin do you have to do see because I'm not stupid I I, <laughs> I, I changed fields but I negotiated the fact that we, I've basically got a secretary to do most of my admin you got leave yeah so because I'm just I'm not on it so I, I when, when I've left I've left and I tell my secretary to do XYZ so um, the thing is, this is you've got the freedom in general practice to do that though, because you're an independent practitioner, okay. and you're your private entity. You can run it how you want. So if you want to take less money and hire a secretary to do this, this, and that, yeah. then that's what you do, mm. and that saves a lot of time for myself. So I spend a lot of my time doing the clinical work. I only I only really spend my time doing clinical work. I don't write no letters. I don't do nothing. Um, I maybe dictate letters and stuff, but <laughs> our, dictate, yeah, yeah. But but the thing is our. Our secretaries are so good that I don't even have to tell. I literally just say, "Look, look at my consultation," and they will put everything together and they'll send all the letters for me. Sick, so yeah, yeah. So big up to them, big up to the medical secretaries, and big up to the reception staff because we love you. You like you, you help us out so much. Okay, cool. So um, you, you there's still more tactics to discuss. So what about um, increase in medical school places? So yeah, so um, Cause this sounds a bit mad to me because mm. like. Obviously, I'm not as well clued on as you guys, but I always saw medicine as a um, industry or practice for people of a certain level of intelligence. Yeah. So if they so when when you when you because you sent me obviously your note before when they say increase medical school places in terms of like where they're increasing it for yeah so like the thing is firstly you don't have to be smart to do medicine at all like in my opinion anyway I just feel like you have to be committed consistent and um, you have to be able to think logically and rationalize quite easily you don't have to be the brightest person in the world um, but the thing about med school is historically there's been a lot of competition. So that's why yeah, you end I up remember when I was at school, the people wanted to do medicine, they yeah. were sweating. So that's why it tends to be the best and brightest because they can outcompete everyone else. So you have to not just be the best academically; you have to have really good extracurricular activities, really so sporting activities, something that's outstanding about you to usually be accepted. And then you have to cane the interview, and then you have to mm. cane the entrance exams as well. Um, but so what they've done is they've increased the medical school places by I think one thousand five hundred per year. Okay, that. But the thing is, I don't think that's really going to affect the quality. Well, it's not going to make a dent, and it's not going to affect the quality because it means ten to one anyway, and uh, they reject a lot of good candidates every year. So I think that's kind of a good thing. Mm. But these increased places, a lot of them are trying to aim to have more general practitioners. So there's actually a school like Anglia Ruskin have started a medical school, um, essentially to try and produce more GPs. Okay, but it's going to be a proper medical school from start to finish. I mean, you've got a lot of backlash from a lot of the snobby type doctors who are like, oh, Anglia Ruskin, Polytech Medical <laughs> School, blah, blah, blah. But end of the day, like, as long as they meet the standard, I don't think it's a problem. Yeah, it's about fulfilling the gap. It's and as long as they, yeah, you're still taking bright kids, you're still mm. going to teach them the same stuff. Medicine's the same everywhere you go, so mm. it's not a problem. But um, So they're trying to increase that by 1,500. But the thing is, you're not going to f- see the fruits of that from out of med school for five years. Yeah. If they want to be a GP, they need to do another five years on top of that. 
Mo- and it's not telling you, and there's, you, there's no guarantee all of them want to be GPs. I think you're going to get the same distribution who are doing the same thing. So you're going to get some who are going to be GPs, some who want to be surgeons, some who want to be anaesthetists, some who want to be um, uh, physicians. You're going to get the same kind of thing. So I don't really think it's a legit strategy. But that's especially if, if you're in terms of the numbers you're telling me, especially if you're telling me that they're chopping to the GPs money. Yeah. Well, the thing is, okay, I say chopping GP's money, they're chopping the partner's money because yeah. they're, they own a business. But if you're, uh, it's a good time to be a salaried or a locum right now. Oh, okay. It's a very good time to be a salaried or a locum right now because you are, you are so in demand in the market because at the end of the day, no matter how many sports support staff they can get, no one's more efficient and good than a GP. So, the, the salaried rates are going through the roof. So people like myself and people at the same level as me just take, in a nutshell, taking advantage. But games are game isn't it yeah yeah but then um, the, not just medical school places I just can't believe what they've done to nursing bursaries I think it's mad so they've basically the nurses used to get bursary to help them through sort of university and stuff like that, and they've basically scrapped them and right. because they I don't know I have no idea because they need nurses and they need nurses desperately they're doing this recruitment drive where I think in a lot of hospitals so a lot of people who work in hospitals you will see like an influx of sort of Italian Portuguese Spanish Filipino nurses yeah you're seeing an influx of lots of different nurses from different places and they try and train them up and make sure they're up to scratch and then sort of put them out in the field but nurses they take away the bursary so the amount of nurses who can um, um, go to sort of uni and train to be a nurse has dropped yeah, because you're taking that financial um, yeah. um, aid away. That's, that's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. Like, because this is the thing about unis. I mean, I, so I don't want to go off on a tangent, but people talk about university fees and about um, tuition fees and nine grand a year. The thing is, that is not the limiting factor for why kids don't go to uni. Because you pay it as a tax. Exactly. And, not, and, not, and it's not even that. You don't see it. So the fact that it's three grand or nine grand or whatever, you don't see it. You don't it goes in it. and out yeah. and it, it pays you as a tax. The thing that stops bright kids or just kids in general going to university from poorer backgrounds is the fact that they can't afford to live the fact they're eating pot noodles every day mm. now the bursaries and the grants are the absolute cornerstone of that so taking away the bursaries and the grants is the direct that's directly what impacts people going to uni and being able to survive at uni mm. and get through their course it's mm. nothing to do with tuition fees tuition fees could be 50 grand you'll still get people going to uni mm. if they can't eat when they get there that's the problem, problem yeah and that's why then i feel like they're taking away the nursing nursing bursaries is annoying and frustrating personally i do think they i mean they will never have a medical bursary because it's so competitive anyway and people will find a way to do it mm. but I would love to see sort of a means tested and academically tested. So if you're very, very right, bright right, and yeah. you've done anything to get a bursary into medicine and stuff like yeah, that. Like a, yeah, like a scholarship or something. I mean, and we are trying to set something up for um, young sort of Afro-Caribbean people. Uh, to Some people I'm getting together are trying to set up sort of like a pot of cash to sort of give a bursary every year to to some people doing medicine. So like hold tight for that. Um, that should be coming soon. That's big. That's Fingers big. crossed. It's sometimes it's like it's best taking your own house, especially for your own community. Hundred percent. Because there's a lot of bright kids who just don't have. Yeah. You, you said no, not being able to um, survive at uni. Some people literally can't go to uni because they can't. Their parents can't afford. Yeah. Them to uh, to miss out that income stream because if they're working yeah. and putting money in their um, in their family's po- pockets, exactly, they can't afford to go uni without no bursary. That's why it's, it's difficult, and that, and that's and that's exactly what we're trying to look at. So I mean. Because unfortunately, I mean, I do complain about sort of the pay and we say we're underpaid, but we're not, okay, we're not starving. And I feel like if a lot of the people from our community come together and even have a little bit of cash, I mean, it doesn't even take much. So if you, if, the, if there's more of you, just a little bit of cash and then just give it to a kid who is 
showing some potential and wants to do something and who's managed to get in but is struggling that's the type of thing we need to do to give back to the community and that's something I feel passionately about yeah actual actual help like we, there's, we, there's, only, there's only, only so much awareness you can raise from so like, yeah. sometimes actually being on, a, on the actual on the battle actually making make a difference yeah, no, that's yeah, yeah. Like, I hope you don't get that popular for us no definitely um, and so, so last tactic I think so what you're seeing a lot of the time now is closure of certain things in hospitals so for example well it's not it's it kind of is closure but a lot of A&E's as they say are closing down and becoming total emergency care centres what they're trying to do is trying to centralise things mm. um, so basically what they'll do is instead of having neurosurgeons at three hospitals they'll close down the neurosurgical department at two of them and then make a big neurosurgical department at one right, okay. to centralise it so they can uh, so you've got a specialist area centre to um, provide for that service but then it's obviously um, that's going to be cheaper but then people are going to have to travel further for it mm. now there's pros and cons to that because like for example they're considering sh- uh, closing down two A&E's in one, in one area and basically making an, an essential A&E further away but I'm thinking if you live sort of close to this area and you're 40 minutes away and you have a stroke, it takes you 40 minutes now to get to this hospital, wherever it is, it will take you 10 minutes. And with and with strokes and things like that, time is, time is everything. Everything. So it's like that, that 40 minutes is like a lifetime and that can really affect people's outcomes. So that's something that's really bad that's happening at this moment in time. I feel like in an ideal world, you should always have certain emergency services, especially like the time-dependent ones like stroke. They should be able to be dealt with everywhere. Yeah. So you should have full access to things like thrombolysis, which is where they break the clot and things like that. Mm. I think you should have access in pretty much every A&E department because it's good. that's really what affects people's lives. Um, that's really what affects people's lives. Well, yeah. Safe costs. Yeah, no, that's, that's what they're trying to do. I mean, it makes sense in a way, but then it's just really... Um, the thing is, like, like from a business perspective, like a lot of mm. stuff, like yeah, you could say it makes sense, but because of the nature of the industry is health related, yeah, it's not like okay, cool, we're cutting costs. Okay, we might want to put out an iPhone that's not as good. Yeah, this yeah. is you're playing with people's actual lives. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so in terms of okay, so in terms of a bit more relatable to the people, then yeah. So why don't you? Why don't we get what we want? So right. if you want a referral, sure. If I want a treatment, this is all the if I want medicine. I get, yeah. If I want to get a scan, like obviously man's got only got a social needs. Why can't I get a scan yeah. when I want to and all that type See, of stuff? See, this is the, these are the questions I got a lot, and this is why I sort of came back to this part too because this is the part that everyone asks why I can't get what I want, etc. So I was trying to break them down one at a time. Um, so referrals now the reason people you don't get what you want it's multifactorial really so mainly when you do a referral there's usually some guidelines now the good thing about doctors careers which is quite nice is no one will tell you what to do they will put what they call guidelines you can follow them if you wish you don't have to follow them if you don't want to Um, provided what you do is defensible in a court of law and not dangerous you can kind of freestyle and do whatever whatever you want Um, but the thing is if you send a so for example you, it's within reason so if you've got a chest problem and I send you to an orthopaedic surgeon they'll, they'll reject the referral obviously they'll mm. tell you what you're doing yeah. dumbass whatever <laughs> but um, so the guidelines are sort of what forms the referral process so a lot of the time I get people coming in they want a referral to XYZ I'm just like you don't fit the guidelines they're just going to reject the referral so that's why I can't give it to them mm. the other reason is if we don't feel that a ref- I mean they've come in and they want a referral to X but we don't feel the referral is warranted because it's like, I know what's going on, I can deal with this easy. Yeah. Um, 
you get some people who accept that and some people who always want to see a specialist and they always want the highest um, degree of they're demanding of the highest degree of care mm. but I'm sorry you can't get that in the NHS and mm. we do always as I mean as doctors have a personal responsibility to try and save costs where we can and that's within reason while still mm. doing what's best for the patient yeah um, so if I do a referral some CCGs which is as I mentioned in the last pod um, sort of the the people who um, run the primary care and who run the sort of costing in that area, they screen them. So they'll literally look at them and say if it's fine and it can go through to the mm. hospital or they will just be like, no, nah, I'm bounce it back to you and reject it. And on that note, there is a professional pride thing. So not in a way as in I feel like I'm, or you feel like you're the best doctor in the world and you can sort out everything, but you want to make sure that your colleagues have a certain degree of respect for you. Yeah. So you want to make sure that the referrals that you do are valid yeah. and they're of high quality and you've shown that you've made an effort to yeah, manage the, and handle the problem on your ones. Because mm. if you're one of these doctors that refer everyone, you, especially as a general practitioner and you're in the community, you're going to be in that community for a while. If you don't have the respect of your peers, life can get very long for you. Mm. Um, so you want to make sure that you build up a good relationship with the people in the hospital. And when they pick up your letter and they see your name, they think, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. And this yeah. guy's done what he's, what he's supposed to be done. And uh, they don't really question you. Yeah. And then when you, cause a lot of the time you have to pick up the phone and talk to these people and you have to chat to these people and you have to work with these people. So you need that. There's that respect thing that you want them to have to have for you. So that's, an, that's another reason people don't get the roles, but it's unlike medications there's no like financial incentives because mm. that's what everyone thinks oh you're just saving money you're just saving money there's not really any financial incentives it's not like a pot of money that comes out for referrals I can mm. pretty much do what I like so mm. it's not really a financial a thing efficiency thing yeah and I, career pride exactly um, the other incentive is if I do a referral I have to do a letter sometimes well, I, I don't because I got sexually but most mm. people do uh, and people can't be asked to do a letter and that's just reality like <laughs> no no real talk because like if you're seeing 36 patients and 10 of them want referrals you've got to do 10 letters at the end of the day that's long Dead. that's long I want to go home um, so there's that part of it as well so that's every referral you're generating yourself you more work one email that's four lines is a long thing for me nah because you have to write a proper letter and you have to put dear colleague yeah. blah 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 yeah. examination blah. it takes long fam like, yeah. so it's a waste of your time as well as a doctor yeah. writing letters writing letters yeah I mean if it's, if it's something you can handle but then if it's valid then it's valid and it goes through but there's no um, financial incentive unlike medications because mm. people are always like oh I like this medication I've had it for 10 years and it works for me and then all of a sudden GPs will change it and like why are you, why are you changing medication I was happy with that and it's like costs because yeah. That is a thing that is cost saving because GPs are massively incentivized in what they prescribe mm. in terms of saving costs because that money then comes to the partners at the end of the year. Okay. So they are on your case. Yeah. They are on your case. So if you're prescribing expensive stuff, mm. that's taking money out of their, their pocket. pocket. They're yeah. gonna they're gonna split up at the end of the year. So that's a bit of a political hot as potato. I say, as I say, incentive drives behavior. Like yeah. people look, and maybe people remember like when you're if you're a partner or general practitioner or you're a doctor, you're not doing it for free. It's a career. Yeah, it is a career. <laughs> it's 100%. a career. You, still got, you, still got, you also have bills and, and stuff to do like that. Definitely. I don't blame them, but... But yeah, so that, that's incentivized. So it's about provide... Um, some of them put what they call script switch on your computer. So yeah. they if you prescribe something expensive, it changes it to something cheap straight away. Swear yeah, no, no. It, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. algorithms in the computer, you know. It's yeah, nuts. it's mad. So... Um, 
because but that I, I can understand because that that's a big pot of money usually in the, the year so for example the summer had about 15 grand left over in their pot for prescribing the end of the year so obviously they paid for their christmas party and that and then um they got to split all that at home and then they take 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 off the top and that's what an extra bit they take home each easy it isn't but um i mean you have to have a i mean if you're getting it for eight pounds or whatever prescription charge or most people don't pay for your prescriptions then you kind of understand where they're coming from that you kind of got to take what you get unless it genuinely doesn't work or there's a general genuine medical reason that you don't need it the other thing about um referrals and medications is um they're analyzed by the ccg which i mentioned and then they pull up this big table at the end of like the quarter the end of the year and basically compare you to all your peers and about what I was saying that person, professional pride thing yeah. you both look you're all looking at it and you, everyone looks out for other people's practices and see what they're doing so it's like oh they're not very good and they're prescribing oh they didn't do well this year and it makes you look like a clown if you oh, don't okay, do well. yeah. so there's that pressure at the same time to make sure you're Working seen some, as a good doctor for, by your peers Yeah, there is always that pressure okay shit <laughs> yeah yeah Okay, cool. So, um, targets. Okay, yeah. So, we do have targets. Um, I always find targets very interesting because I like to believe I have a logical mind. So, I like to find out that what is a process do you go by to set a target? You know mm. what I'm saying? So, so first of all, explain to me like um, what kind of targets you have and then give me your analytical view on top of that. I mean, there's... A... No, no, you don't have to go yourself specifically. Yeah, what, yeah. There's... What could happen for like the average practice or... Okay, or... so, I mean, I, I do speak about general practice a lot because that's what I've sort of had moved into now and I have a lot of sort of more experience in terms of the finances. But in terms of the targets... I mentioned the quaff earlier, so it's things like making sure the blood pressure targets, mm. making sure the asthma targets are hit and all that kind of stuff, and that's what you get paid for. So you need to do that at the, uh, the end of the sort of uh, financial year. So literally, when you'll sit there at the end of the financial year and look at all your targets you haven't met, and then mm. you'll be sitting there till 11am calling people, making sure the asthma's on point, this is on point, so you can sort all that out. So you have mm. a lot of clinically-based targets. And then they do set targets on you so you don't make too much money. That's mm. the thing. So if you are being... Uh, how do I put this? An unscrupulous person who didn't really care about the people that you're providing mm. the service for, which happens a lot actually. Mm. You have to provide a certain amount of GP appointments per thousand patients on your list. Mm. Um, so you need to employ a certain amount of doctors or stuff like that. So what some practices do, they'll try and bypass that by providing nurse practitioner appointments who are a lot cheaper mm. or not providing enough appointments at all because they say they can't get enough locums that they can't recruit but then at the end of the day if they don't have to have that outlay then at the end because the staff is always the biggest outlay yeah, the then at the end of the year it's all of a sudden this practice that's basically got a four week waiting list to get an appointment everyone's taking home mad money at the end of the year and everyone's sort of like hmm I wonder oh, how that what's, happens what's you, what are you man on <laughs> yeah yeah so um you get uh, targets per thousand of patient in the population and then um, just your general clinical targets and stuff like that. you just got to make sure you hit. And uh, the clinical targets mostly are quite well thought out on the most part. Some of them are pretty poor, but it's all to try and... It's all evidence-based to try and get mm. what's best for the patient and what's shown in studies to improve outcomes and stuff like that. Okay, so they're not completely arbitrary from the government just trying to... Sure. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, cool. So we'll do this last bit and move on to questions, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So, ways to cope with the mind, because on the last podcast, episode 14, check that out, 
uh, we discussed like the crazy demand numbers and we gave our reason for that but mm. I'm, as many of you may know I'm always here in the stories the crazy demand there is for hospitals waiting times and whatnot so what are the ways to kind of cope with demand the way to cope with the demand and this is this is proven it's not biased is move this is what they're trying to do move everything keep as much out of hospital as you can keep as much away from sort of secondary care and move it to primary care because mm. it's all done cheaper in the community um, and it's all sort of quite homogenised in the community so you, people can talk to people it's not as fragmented mm. um, so keep as much out of that as you can essentially um, as well as that um, there's all GPs are trying to work in different ways mm which I think there was one of the questions that we'll come on to. So um, I think I'd mentioned last time that um, I was sort of part of introducing the telephone triage system, mm. which didn't work. <laughs> um, so, the, yeah, it's the telephone triage system into the digital practice where basically everyone who had to call calls, you don't speak to the reception most of the time, you get a, a GP telephone appointment mm. and then you discuss your problem and then they decide if you need to come in, if you don't need to come in, if they can deal with it over the phone. The reason is because you, it's, you've got five-minute telephone appointments instead of 10-minute appointments, so you can deal with, theoretically, more people, mm. so like 80% more people. Um, now, that didn't work. The reason it didn't work is because the demand went mm. crazy because it became so easy to be, get an appointment people were calling for all types of madness. One oh, yeah. One, 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 one girl called, called up and was like, oh, my friend had this vaccine and I was just wondering about it and I couldn't find it on Google. And I was like... Uh, your job? Uh, See, because you your, your job has a lot... You have a lot of um, client facing, which is obviously your people. Yeah. I'm not built for that. Yeah. I'm not, I don't have the temperament. You know I'm not built for that. I'm not the type of person, but you know what? It's, it's paying the bills, so yeah, like, yeah. But like, but you you still at least you still have at least enough restraint. I'll be telling people to suck their mouth in four working days. Boy, how can you call to say my friend wasn't vaccinated? Yeah. Can't find on Google. So people start using it yeah, as like so. It basically what it did is changing the system opened the floodgates because mm. we increased the supply, the demand just increased. So then we dropped the supply again when we changed back, and the demand dropped. So, like, this is what I'm saying, how there's a demand problem, because mm. people think it's free and it's easy to accessible. If you find make it easy accessible, the demand goes through the roof. But I do think that that is still a good tool, which we're now doing a hybrid system, mm. where we kind of screen what's done on the telephone triage system. But doing a lot more things over the telephone is better so because more it's more efficient. efficient. Also, you're seeing these FaceTime consultations and stuff like that, which yeah. I know is one of the questions which people are talking about, and sort of eye consulting and web consulting. Now... That's another way because you can do, if you're skilled at it and you're quick at it, you can do three web consults per um, time you'd use in a regular consult. Mm. So, again, it's trying to find ways to get more out of every general practitioner or every doctor or every nurse, etc. But the problem is, and a lot of people found that doctors were burning out because what makes it difficult in our job is processing the amount of processing you have to do and literally before you said that I was about to say I understand that makes more more efficient but essentially just because your doctors are doing the same amount of hours they're doing a lot more work so their brain's working exponentially quicker because before okay let's say in one hour period they saw three patients then if they're now seeing nine you're analysing information evaluating using your brain yeah. way more times than... And you have to do it quicker as well. You have to do it quicker as well. And honestly, it it really impacted the mental health of a lot of the doctors that I practice. People mm. were literally on their knees because um, 
you usually you do like 18 patients in the morning 18 patients in the evening so they were doing 36 and 36 mm. so uh, to deal with that many things and you obviously everything you're taking risk for and telephone consultations because you can't see the person you can't examine them and mm. more risky as well yeah so you literally you you were just it was too much to do so people were like look i can't work like this like literally i'll die no i'll, I'll die very soon so we had to find a, a system but do it still having that as an option and to increase the amount of efficiency per per doctor and yeah. increase the amount of consultations is something they're doing the other thing they're doing is basically trying to scale everything up so back in the day you used to have single gps so everyone mm. had their own practice one one person and then i think it was in about the 60s or 70s people started to merge up and join these partnership mm. models um and i think that was to provide and make it more efficient and i think that's going to happen again mm. so what you're going to see is you're going to see practices a lot of merge a lot of practices merge mm. and a lot of practices sort of buy out other practices or just merge together and get bigger and you're going to see practices go from list sizes of 10 15,000 20,000 to 50 60,000 mm. 70,000 because you've got economies of scale then so mm. every all, every unit that you do it becomes more cheaper precisely so that's what you're going to see and i feel like you're going to need to see um multidisciplinary teams under the same roof so as you increase that scale you're going to have not just a gps you're going to what you do have now a gp and a pharmacist and an optometrist and uh um, uh, social working team and a uh, nursing team and you're going to see that all under one roof okay and that's so central, that's kind of more centralised things well. centralised things but one you're taking stuff out of um, hospitals Those. and secondary care and making it cheaper in primary care but then you've got the economies of scale in primary care by making things bigger yeah. and scaling them up um, and that's what you're going to see in, in the future and then that's good because you've got a good skill mix and things like that and um, that's probably going to be um the way we move forward so i'll finish off just because someone asked me a question actually and it's like the hallmarks of a good gp surgery is like how do i know as a layman because i always complain and i say a lot of the best surgeries get the worst nhs choices so you've got NHS choices and people just slag off their gp surgeries and stuff or slag off their mm. gps and it's so sad when you go through that because you see a lot of the best surgeries get the worst feedback because people may not get what they want so the people who are respected the doctors who are respected as being good doctors not the worst feedback they don't get the worst feedback because it's generally the worst so they don't get the worst feedback but <laughs> they don't get the feedback, they, get the feedback they deserve yeah, yeah. so because they're actually doing their job properly. they're actually doing their job properly so a lot of the mediocre feedback they're actually the best doctors that everyone respects and mm. everyone's like that person's sick and a lot of the people at the top are the people who just give people what they want who aren't really doing their job properly mm. so like for me the hallmarks of a good surgery for me are a surgery that constantly is changing to meet demand and who listens to their patient feedback yeah. so for example they listen when we changed the telephone triage system we listened to the feedback the patients didn't like it because they spent too much time on the phones and all that kind of stuff and they wanted to see more face-to-face -face. we changed we changed yeah. so we, we thought right cool in a month after we got enough feedback we changed that's quite efficient so things like that um so people who listen and care to care about their patients is quite a hallmark of good surgery because a lot of practices nowadays are so burnt out and i don't blame them that they just stop caring and just they're just trying to survive yeah, because it, it, everybody has um their breaking point yeah definitely um so the clinicians or the people the doctors who are there it's the people who it's all about their communication so the ones who talk to you give you good explanations who have time for you and stuff like that um a good practice usually have the ones who have lots of services so they do a lot of different things mm. so they do like coils they do everything they do um 
they do um blood tests they do all these kind of things especially like blood tests and stuff because they don't make pee off that mm. they every practice i know barely breaks even off that but they do it because they want to provide a good service mm. so it shows that they care um staff turnover so if your gp practice is always having a 10 time 10 different gps and you never yeah, recognize the same person yeah no nah, that's not a good not a good sign um i always mention about referral rates so not too high um, but not too low either so that middle ground because they're not incentivized again it shows that they're trying to do their thing but then they will still um, refer. refer if needed um, and obviously the quaff and prescribing numbers are always a marker of efficiency and stuff like that interesting uh, yeah okay so the amount of stuff I've learned today is lit yeah I'm sorry that's probably really somber and really sad but I just had to say that no 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 really yeah. so sometimes you have to know but like the more we look the more we know for real yeah. the better for me like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like and especially the last bit how to know a good surgeon because now think about my one in back in northwest they were bums fam but knowing like the area and the type of people in that area I don't blame them they're yeah. pretty yeah. peasants yeah, but, nah, nah. yeah you see what I'm saying so anyway so some questions so uh, let me grab my telecommunication that's my one question cool man go for it go for it there were some okay. good que- uh, thanks for the questions as well some of them were really good and um, really well thought out um, and I actually sort of I didn't try I tried not to look at them too much because I want to give an authentic answer okay but. cool so okay so you definitely need to screenshot that you, did, uh, you didn't get this person's at so that's your, that's your fault but anyway someone asked is the social healthcare system cost um, cost, um, cost ineffective and poor at allocating allocating scarce resources what is it um, what's that again is the social healthcare system Cost ineffective and poor allocating scarce resources. Nah, not really. Um, I wouldn't say it's uh, poor allocating resources and stuff like that. Um, the, so- the socialized system, you're always going to get a degree of uh, wastage if you have a government system. You're going to get more wastage than a private system. I wouldn't say it's poor allocating resources um, at all. Um, I feel like the NHS does a pretty good job in terms of allocating resources. I feel like the NHS, because the staff actually generally more time when the morale was better give a shit mm-hmm. and it's probably due to the hard work of the staff more than the system mm-hmm. that um the integrity the, of the staff yeah the, but i don't think that it's poor at all i don't think so i mean don't get me wrong i'm not really a big fan of socialized healthcare, as everyone knows but i don't think that that's a fair thing to say okay cool shout out you for the question sorry he's the way he screen captured it your name will come out my bad anyway cmg brody i hope brody's for russell westbrook um <laughs> How could the UK move towards a private healthcare, so private health service, and would it be successful? Well, like as I mentioned on the last pod, um, this is a tough question because moving towards a private healthcare service it depends on what you mean by private. So, as I mentioned last time, you can have privately owned or privately funded. I'm assuming that you mean privately funded. Now, it has a choice to make whether it adopts the American style insurance based system as a privately funded system which is crap in my opinion or you move to a still more centralised and regulated by government but privately funded system with either like a German type model where you've got um, sort of public health funds but still privately funded or something like that or you move to a um, 
model like Singapore where you're coming out of pocket for stuff but it's still centralised by government so you're still paying for pay-as-you-go which I think Singapore is probably the best system pay-as-you-go but yeah, it's no, still publicly one. funded yeah, because you've still got the cost controls and stuff yeah yeah, because firstly if you're going um, to actually physically hand over money per um, service you're going to get you're going to change dramatically yeah. and I was speaking to one of my homies shout out Crystal she in Houston she was like oh she's been mad sick I'm like fam let's go to your GP because you know how much it is. I was like, oh, shame, you have to pay. Oh, yeah. and that, and she's actually has something wrong with work. her. Yeah, Sweet. but because of the fact that she has to physically hand over money, yeah. it changes stuff. So obviously, you don't, you don't want people here to not go in when they have, they have something. But see, if you're gonna have something like, oh, I've got a hiccup, but you know it's gonna pay fifteen pounds for a time, yeah. you might want to go. See, there's pros and cons to that. So, well, she's in Houston, America. Yeah. So the reason in America is because it's too expensive. Yeah, yeah, they're what is bottom line. It's, it's everything is overpriced and overinflated, and there's reasons for that, which I think I touched on on the last pod, but we can maybe go into later or something. But um, in terms of um, paying, and people say, "Oh, people will be put off paying, um, put off going because it's money." But at the end of the day, it is still your personal responsibility to look after your healthcare. If you don't go because you're now saying you don't want to pay and you're becoming tight, then at the end of the day, that it's should your, be on you. That's on your personal responsibility that, that you haven't looked after your own healthcare. So that's that's always my answer to that question. Okay. Okay, um, I was about to answer your question. That was actually just a send from Jesse. But, okay, cool. Oh, I swear. <laughs> no, it was another... It was oh, another right, actually, I almost said it by accident. Okay, cool. Um, Ken Patchy asks, um, thoughts on the newly introduced over-the-phone Skype-style GP visits? Is it the future? Should people get onto them? How accurate are these virtual diagnostics? Right, so, um, as we just touched on about sort of the Skype and FaceTime type things, I would t- I'll give it to you from patient's perspective and a doctor's perspective. From patient's perspective i think it's great the reason is i think you can have easier access to your general practitioner most things can be dealt with in that kind of scenario and the good thing about the web gp is unlike telephone consultation you can see you can get still get sort of semi-examined because you've got the visual Mm. so because you've got the visual it's actually good so from a patient's perspective i think it's pretty good the only thing is there is increased risk of misdiagnosis you're not yeah you're not going to get as good a diagnosis as if you're face to face in my opinion in terms of if you look at 100 times out of 100 times that'll be less effective from a gp's perspective it's um you have to get with the times you have to get with the future I don't really like them because one, the increased risk. So I'm thinking I might get more chance to get sued. Um, two, it makes it harder to diagnose people because you haven't got that full on examination, especially you can't do the vitals and stuff like that. And three, it means I have to process things more quickly and I have less time. So it, it, it it's tiring and it's draining, um, yeah. but it's something that we're going to have to get with the times. However, I hope that my people in my position demand more cash for per minute if you're doing a yeah, kind of, of thing of so i hope that the salaries or people negotiate their salaries to reflect the amount of web consulting and gp consulting they do because it is a lot harder skill it's a lot harder skill and you're taking on more personal risk and you're taking on more personal risk and because of that your um your indemnity your insurance costs are skyrocketing which is mad because in hospital insurance costs are kind of all right so they're a couple of grand couple of grand I mean, GPs are going up to 13, 14, 15 grand a year just for insurance. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's a bit nuts. Okay, cool. Um, Esco3, oh, long question, but would the UK benefit from a more privatised system where the government's role is to control set prices, and other like set prices, and regulate insurance as opposed to a fully privatised system where, where all the healthcare is essentially a free market? So, 
I think I mean I think that's a sick question yeah, yeah, um, uh, and I feel like he's referring to so the American system where but the thing is I don't like when people call the American system a free but market because it's, it's not a free market no. it is um, it go. is a misuse of insurance that yeah. is what it is that's yeah that is what it is it's a misuse of insurance but I do feel like I, I mean I agree with him in terms of the UK would benefit from moving into a sort of semi-privatised market but the You've got to have a form of cost control, and that's what America don't have. Yeah. And the form of cost control, as I mentioned on the last pod, has either got to be in the competition, so opening up competition. So, for example, what you could do is if I need to go to someone to, I don't know, um, examine my, not examine my knee, give me, have a knee x ray, yeah. it'd be better to give me like a token and I can choose between anywhere to go and then I come back with a result so mm. I can go to 20 places and they're, yeah. all, they're all selling x-rays and I just go to one who's the best service, the best quality, blah 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 and make them compete for excellence so that's a way to keep your cost down and control your costs if you haven't got that, which you don't in the American market because the way it works, you don't compete for every service, you've got your insurance taking care of everything um, Like then you don't really have that cost control. So your government has to regulate costs because otherwise people in the medical profession, not just doctors, but insurance people, um, radiologists, everything, they get very greedy and everyone's greedy by nature. Yeah, everyone is. I'm greedy. Of course, we all are. And if you do that... um, if if you don't have the government regulating then costs will just spiral which is what you've got in America. Because I think... Let me just talk about this American insurance actually because I think it's a joke. It should insurance, health insurance should be run like car insurance mm. or home insurance. So, for example, if I, I've got my car now, I've just paid out dumb P for my car because uh, some dumb scratch, whatever, cool. <laughs> yeah, that was bad. Yeah, that? no, I was so I was so annoyed. But well, anyway, <laughs> but anyway, you don't. So, if I get a flat tire, if I get a scratch, I'm not going to go to my insurance for that because like that's going to put my premiums up and that's going to make it more expensive and because I don't go to my insurance that because I'm paying out of pocket for that I will shop around provided like I will go to this place this place this place this place and then I'll find which one's the cheapest right cool and that's what keeps cost down that's what drives competition the way it works in America is no one knows fuck all about what they're paying for this service that service that service insurance just take care of it because insurance take care of it there's that there's not that shop around factor so that doesn't there's not that competition to drive down costs. So it's like, for example, if I had my car insurance and every time I got a fat tyre, I, I claimed on insurance. Every time I got um, a scratch, I claimed on insurance. Every time a little thing happened to my car, wear and tear, I claimed on insurance. There's no incentive for me, as you say, to, to shop around. Because there's no incentive for me to shop around, what do you think is going to happen to the price of changing tyres? What do you think is going to happen to the price of changing brakes? Not, what do you think is going to happen to the price of sl- scratching? They're going to slap up. And that's what I'm saying. And that's the problem with the American yeah. system. And that's why their health insurance is not it's not cool. If you made everyone pay, in terms of America, pay out of pocket for certain things, those things will get cheaper. Yeah. And the insurance should be for the catastrophic things that you couldn't pay for on a one-off. Yeah, it's a scam. Yeah, for the Americans. Anyway, Shenny Boy, that's quite a choice name. Shout out to you. Hey, he's um, a doctor as well. Big up, my man. Oh, he's a doctor as well. Yeah, yeah. Big yeah. up, big up. Big went, up. Went, to my, went to my med school in a couple of years below me. So yeah. Oh, shout out him. Another young king. Respect it. Anyway, can't remember if can't remember if you touched on the previous one, but explain the idea of health. Explain the idea of the, but explain the ideal healthcare scenario. Looking at Singapore and breaking down why it's good, can UK get there? Also, 
how the public can take ownership of their own health so you move away from entitlement mentality. That last two words is real. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, we touched on that last pod, so I don't want to go into it too much. You can probably listen to the last pod for that. But um, uh, so, yeah, um, Singapore Health is good. I like it because it's efficient. It's publicly owned, so you've got cost controls which are implemented by the government. um, And you've got um, uh, the balance in terms of the demand side because you've got people paying small fees, Mm -hmm. not massive fees, but small fees, uh, just for everything. So in, in, in the way we were saying about the car insurance, the car tires and stuff like that, they're paying little bits for that. So it controls the demand side of the equation and that's why I feel like it's probably one of the most efficient healthcare systems I've looked at. Um, entitlement culture is an... In, uh, I can't say... It's an English thing. I can't lie to you. It's yeah, just it's it's this thing. It's Western a thing. That's, thing. Yeah. It's especially, a thing. Especially Western it. world, but especially, especially England. England. Especially yeah. England because we've had the NHS for so long and people of um, this generation have grown up and they've not known any different so they're entitled to it. Same thing with like a lot of other um, government programs so it's one of the things that is going to take a long time to erode and I don't think it will be eroded for a very very long time okay CMG Brody again he asks also what effect will the NHS will, will what actual effect on a NHS will Brexit have right so Brexit is going to be complicated um, it, it's it's very difficult to predict exactly what it's going to have, but as we can see, a recruitment issue will happen. We've already got problems with recruitment anyway, and it will make it more difficult for people in the EU to come and work over here. Mm. Some of them may not feel as welcome, mm. so that might add to the recruitment crisis. Um, I mean, it depends on what happens to the economy. Uh, the economy being the strength of the economy is important for the strength of the NHS. So if the economy crashes, then the it's a big problem. Um, uh, other effects of Brexit on the NHS um, could be tariffs and things like that on um, supplies and stuff like that that they use from from the mm. continent. So that could be another factor, and that could make things more expensive. Um, and yeah, that it could be. I mean, that's all I can really think of off the top of my head. So yeah, it's, Brexit, it's difficult to predict. Yeah, Brexit is very difficult to predict. Okay, Chief um, Chief FA says, what are the weaknesses in primary healthcare that wouldn't necessarily exist in a different system? Um, expose the weaknesses that NHS files. NHS files <laughs> don't see or know about um, so weaknesses um, the weaknesses of the primary healthcare system really are I feel like the way if you're going to run a single payer healthcare system or a government run healthcare system having the model that we have in terms of having general practitioners because there's only a model that is not prevalent in the world so you've got here you've got Australia you've got Canada you've got New Zealand and that's pretty much about it but other places like America are looking at it because it's very efficient. So I think um, the NHS is only uh, responsible for 9 or 10% of the cost of the... The GP's primary care is only responsible for 9 or 10% of the cost of the NHS, but sees sort of like 80% of the patients. Or That's like that. efficient as It's well. a very efficient system. Um, so... Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's quite difficult to answer that question, but what was it, can you read it again? What are the weaknesses in primary health care um, that wouldn't necessarily exist in a different system? weaknesses so so the weaknesses are that you, it's because it's quite an efficient and accessible system um in this current system you've got too much demand and there's no way to control that and that's probably about it and expose the weaknesses of the nhs files so i'm assuming this is like some sort of insult I, yeah that's some sort of insult i'm not going to really talk about people who love the nhs they love the nhs for their own reasons i don't agree with them but i'm not can't say they're wrong we just have a difference of opinion um do you want to go? I'm with a bit into it. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, Shamar K, S-A-S-A-S-A-S-A. Oh, that's quite a funny name. Anyway, what do you think the effects of Brexit and suspension... Okay, we already discussed the um, effects of um, Brexit and suspension of free movement. We can't discuss yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be the same thing. 
Um, it's only boy again. Lastly, a day in a day in the life of a GP. <laughs> Why is it not all rosy? The workload and the constraints that they're under. And sorry, not that question, but that's the ideas to explore. Oh wow. Okay, I know this guy's frustrated with medicine right now for asking that question. But <laughs> for, so a day in the life of a general practitioner. Like people think GP is very easy. It's freaking hard. Well, actually, that's a lie. It's it's relatively easy to do poorly. So oh, okay. if you're pants and you don't care about people, it's quite easy to do because you just do whatever you want and no one checks your work because you work as an independent person. You haven't in a hospital, you've got a team to answer to. So yeah. there's always someone who will be two grades below you, who's bright, who's ambitious and who will keep you in check. So if you're not up to date and you're not up to scratch, they'll let you know and, and a lot of the juniors who are on the timeline will know because they look at some some people and they think oh that guy's a bit shit like, yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff and they're actually correcting their seniors on stuff like that which does happen but usually that drives you to be excellent but in GP you've got people who are sitting in their own room for years on end who are just getting worse and worse and worse every year and not keeping up to date um, but so in the life of a GP so it's not it's not difficult to do poorly but to do well and if you're conscientious and you actually care about people it's so difficult yeah. so my life in the more so I'm lucky to work in a practice that's quite flexible so I can pick the times I work so I might work at 7 in the morning and finish at 2 I might work at 8 finish at 3 whatever um, I have a 4 hour gap in the day because I feel like going to play some fucking football or whatever yeah. so it's kind of nice doing that but I'll come in for my morning session let me just say for a normal day so st- let me say I'm starting at 9 I'll probably come in at 8 I will look at all the blood results from the previous day um, that have in my inbox. Um, so that could be anywhere between 50 and 60. Um, so out of them, loads of them will be normal, which is nice. But then the ones that need action can take a very long time. That can involve doing a lot of different things, calling people, calling patients, saying you need to go to hospital, this, that, organising that. So I'll spend an hour before the day doing that and the letters. So looking at all the letters from people who come back from the hospital um, and basically seeing, because they put in the letter... Um, if you need to do something GP needs to do this and all all you juniors on the TL yeah it's not my job to chase stuff I'm telling you now stop writing GP to do bullshit jobs because (laughs) it comes back to us and someone actually has to do what you write so please stop it anyway so yeah we have to go back on all the letters and um, we basically go through all of them and if anything needs to be done medication needs to be changed do that then you start your morning clinic got 10 minute appointments you'll see 18 patients um but we do telephone appointments so we'll do um so 80 no we'll do um 12 telephone appointments and then 12 face-to-face appointments so i'll deal with 24 patients and do whatever i need to do um then in the middle of the day i will continue to do my letters and blood results because more will have come in um luckily so most gps will do home visits in the middle of the day and then they will do a lot of their admin which is writing their letters and stuff from the previous i don't have to do that fortunately because one we've got secretaries there and two um we have arranged it so we don't have to do home visits every day but a lot of gps then will go and do their home visits and some people do up to five a day will literally drive all around town doing visits to people's house come back do the second half of their surgery so then they'll do another either 18 patients if they're doing face-to-face or they'll do um 12 um telephone and 12 face-to-face or whatever structure they're doing then after that they'll do the rest of the letters the rest of the blood results which can take a very long time and they can be quite serious um, they'll go through the do their other letters all their kind of admin work um, which can take forever and um, then go home so it depends on how you structure your day or what your practice has but some people GPs will start work at 8 o'clock and not finish till 9 o'clock at night because they're doing so much admin That's a good, that looks which is long and then they'll do that and then wake up and do it all over again and this is why 
most GPs don't work full time. And that's the thing. And that's a big problem with the recruitment because they're making it so stressful because back in the day, you had a respiratory physician doing your asthma and COPD. You had your heart uh, cardiologist doing your heart stuff and GPs just kind of oversaw everything. Mm. But because they're trying to push everything out to general practice, you need in this this generation's general practitioner needs to know a hell of a lot, a lot more, more than they did before. Trust me. And they need, but that's why they introduced a certain set of exams. They need to a hell of a lot more and they need to be able to deal with more. So you have to be on the ball really and you have to do quite a lot more work than it sounded like in the past and so yeah some some GPs do no, no GPs work full time though so it works on a number of sessions so you get so one session is one half day a week one half one half day so Monday morning is a session Tuesday morning is a session for the whole year um, so if a GP's doing 10 sessions would be five days a week no one does that no one does that me because I'm mental I do nine sessions and that's why it's quite stressful. Most so full time is eight or nine sessions. Most work part time, so most are doing either so five or six or something like that, or something around that. And it's because a lot of people want to have kids, and a lot of people who do general practice want to do it because of family life and stuff. Forget that. Yeah, to sort that out, and then okay, cool. So Clint's pro- prospect. Uh, what what healthcare system would you would you well would he prefer? So this is. Them asking questions. Yeah. What healthcare systems would the R&B doctor prefer? <laughs> <laughs> <Love> <laughs> the, the NHS, a Bismarck system like Germany, or so we kind of gone into this. We've gone into this already. I've prefer the Singapore system. Yeah. In a nutshell. Shout out to Clint. Why? Why hospitals have to rely on nurses, Philippines, India, and Europe? And what the future holds simple as they don't produce enough of their own um so that's why they have to rely on imports because they're they're not producing enough staff and the demand is outstripping the amount of staff that they have in the uk so they have to import um and the thing is and what and said what does it mean for the future of international recruitment unfortunately you will always be able to recruit from the poorest countries Mm. because the gap economically between here and somewhere like there is massive so it's worth it's, it's worth the transition it's worth transition even if the work conditions are pants because they're making so much more over here than they would in their the country that they're from, mm. that you're always going to have people who are willing to do that. So that's why international recruitment is not going to stop and it will probably only get worse. In terms of general practice and things like that and doctors, I'm telling you the only reason that's keeping a lot of people away is the English language requirements that are placed on the medical exams here if they really wanted to and they were really desperate and they removed those requirements you will have enough doctors but they will maybe not be able to communicate with a lot of people and that's and that's 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 literally what there's there's plenty that will be there who are willing to work because there's plenty of poor countries in our own england despite the working conditions and there's people who will work very hard for very little money and because their life will be much better here than it is where they're from and they can send a lot of money back
like that kind of especially like intellectual academic stuff so a lot of doctors do look down on professions like that i don't think i don't know why because personally i think everyone has their specialty and expertise and there'll be things that they know that we have no idea about and the thing and doctors are not authorities on everything i'll yeah. tell you that straight away yeah. um just because someone's a doctor doesn't mean they know shit about certain things yeah. so um yeah um i mean don't get me wrong like i do feel like they do have a lot of knowledge on a lot of things and a lot of different health professionals would actually benefit from listening to them from what because they do have a good back background in basics and basic medical sciences and stuff like that but then it's a sort of give and take so there is a lot of snobbery against those type of things which i think will die out because the medical students and medical people are, who are younger are changing mm. and are more open to that type of thing mm. but historically there has been a lot of yeah. snobbery here Okay, how far uh, or close are we from privatisation? It's difficult to say. Um, I thought that with, if we kept in the EU and um, Brexit didn't happen, I think that would have probably accelerated it through the back door via TTIP. So I was thinking if, if that went through, it'd probably be about five years. Mm. Now it's quite difficult to predict. It really depends on the economic situation. If the economy does poorly, um, then it will be accelerated, I think. Mm. But if the economy does well, I still think that there will be... People will fight too for Nelf and the NHS. Mm. Yeah, but will. I would be surprised if in 15 years from today that the NHS in its current form is still present. Yeah, totally. Is the, is the current system the best model? Or no, we no. That. What's your opinion on junior NHS contract situation? Um, I, I touched on the last one. Um, I think the junior doctor's contract, as I mentioned, is pretty fair. Um, I, I mean, still underpaid, don't get me wrong, especially, I mean, I don't think F1s and F2s are that far underpaid. I think more the speciality doctors and people who have serious responsibility in a hospital are severely underpaid. Um, but I feel like compared to this deal, it's quite fair. You get paid for work done. The only thing is it depends on how much we trust them because yeah. they can work us into the ground technically and work us every week or every other weekend, even though there's not really a requirement to because yeah. this seven-day working is, BS. At the end of the day, you're not going to see someone um, just so in any job. So if you pick a job, you're not going to see someone in tes in Tesco flipping, serving the tills at 5 a.m. on or the same amount of people, sorry, serving tills at 5 a.m. on a Saturday night than you are going to at Tuesday on a at 10 p.m. on a Tuesday or 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. Sorry people they need to understand that the weekend is different from the weekday and night is different from day you are you can't have a sit the same service running 24 7 but the reason they want that to is because it's easier it's to sell off that way and that's it yeah. but um the new junior dot contract i think it's fair um i think it's got um in terms of pay you get more pay um i think the pay is front loaded so you get paid earlier even though it's still not quite up to scratch and i feel that um you've got sort of not safeguards aren't too bad and especially because we've left the eu and depending on what type of brexit we have if they don't keep the workers rights then we kind of kind of got off lucky okay cool um the real bfg 92 another doctor shout out my man he said would be um such a generally low doctor morale you kind of have and express the percentage of people doing f3s and are not continuing training or going abroad etc um yeah and i'm going to tie that into this will be uh, my question where is the like for you i know you know the few doctors i know yeah where's the best place would you say if like 
if you could up and leave to go practice what you're doing, where would the best place be? So, so Dr. Morale, as we mentioned before, pretty low, um, especially the ones who are on the shop floor doing the, the top, um, the real sort of grunt workers, um, juniors, especially on the field. I still think it gets a bit better when you get speciality mm-hmm. training because people care about you and they actually need to make sure you know your stuff so you get more education. Um, but yeah, overall morale's low. F3s, I think um, the last stat I looked, 50% of doctors are finishing F2 and not going into some kind of training post so they were either doing F3s or local so yeah 50% which is quite a lot Um, so a lot of people aren't really deciding to move into training and do more things Um, if I was going to go somewhere and the reason I would go to Australia because they're paying stupid money yeah yeah, I thought about Australia stupid money I wouldn't go to Canada even though they're paying nice money they it's difficult to get into a nice place nah yeah one is bare liberal (laughs) and I feel like that is hell on earth (laughs) but um, the other thing is it's difficult to get in the places where you'd want to work like if you want to work in Toronto or something like that it's quite difficult so it's easy to get a job in Canada but out in the sticks where you're 20 miles from the nearest shop and you're in with wolves and coyotes, <laughs> and shit. so yeah, I'm not, I mean, they're paying nice money, but it's not worth it. Um, it's not worth it. But um, America, I would never work in that American system because that looks that looks terrible. It looks awful. Yeah, the, the doctors chop there though. They chop, yeah, nice money, very very nice money, very very nice money. But it looks awful. It looks like a horrible place to work. The only the only ones that look decent are the what they I think they call the road ones in America. So it's radiology, anesthesiology. Um, no, that's radiology, ophthalmology, anesthesiology, and something else. Dermatology, because they they basically are kind of removed from their system and they get their payment payment in cash and they don't have to faff around with all their bullshit. So oh. that's why they make the most money. So um, that's what everyone in America who has any sort of financial incentive wants to do. But um, anything else, it doesn't look very good to work in. Okay, cool. Well, I hope that answers most of people's questions. Cool. That was a very very informative. I like that one. Decent. So, any advice for any aspiring doctors? So, let's say um, that's probably like college sixth form. Don't do it. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. But I said that to the straight face. That came from the heart. No, 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 no. If you if you really want to be a doctor, um, you have to start early. Like, so can't lie to you. Sixth form's too late. <laughs> you have to be bang on it from high school nowadays because it's so competitive. Um, you need to know exactly what to do. So, you need a, not a mentor, but you need advice mm. so go and seek advice um, because there's so many things that you need to do and so many things you need to know and you need to prepare very early so it's about preparation because it there's so many good candidates which are getting turfed nowadays um it's not the end of the world if you don't make it first time but it's getting much more difficult to um to do sort of um not post uh, yeah postgraduate medicine it's even more competitive mm. so if that's your plan um i'd consider I'd reconsider that so I'd try and get in the first time if you can um, what else look at the foundation courses if you're from a um, lower socioeconomic background make sure you look at those and you because they are available and they're out there if you can um, find them and just try and make sure you prepare for prepare, prepare that's all I can say but if you are an aspiring medic and you need some help um, we've got uh, basically I've got quite a few initiatives so there's mentor to medicine and things like that so just shout me and I'll point you in the right direction and we'll do whatever we need to do to get you in um, shout out all the people who we've got in off Twitter um, to med school like honestly I'm really proud of you guys you've done so well um, all doing well at med school now so um, we'll keep going and uh, keep 
trying to make things better for everyone. You know, basically get people to med school. Yeah, med school, that med school jihad is not a joke. Bruv, trust me. Bruv. Yeah, man. thank you for coming through. No worries. Thank you for listening. Um, if you haven't been blocked by um, <laughs> make sure you um, you can check out his tweets. Um, I'll link his app so you can ask some questions. Um, if you haven't subscribed to me on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please make sure you do that. Use the purple app on your phone. Just type in podcast in your search bar um, and give me a cheeky review, whether you like it or not. It's good to hear honest opinions, but preferably if you think it's lit. Also, follow me on SoundCloud and tell a friend to tell a friend share my podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.